Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello once again, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I talk to various people about the five things from their life that they would like to put into a time capsule, four things that they cherish and want to preserve, and one that they would like to bury in the ground and never visit again. My guest this week is Chris Addison. Chris started his career as a stand-up comic, appearing at the Edinburgh Festival for, well, a number of years, and he was a regular performer on the comedy panel show Mock the Week. But he's probably best known for playing Ollie Reader in The Thick of It, and a similar character in the film In the Loop, called Toby Wright. He's also a director and producer. He won an Emmy as executive producer of Armando Iannucci's Veep, the brilliant HBO sitcom starring Julia Louis-Dreyfus, for which he also won a Directors Guild of America award. In 2019, he directed the film The Hustle with Rebel Wilson and Anne Hathaway, a role reversal remake of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. And recently, he's been back in Britain as the director and producer of the comedy Breeders, which he co-created with the show's main writer, Simon Blackwell, and its star, Martin Freeman. I spoke to Chris at his home in London. Well, he was in his home and I was in mine, social distancing by about 50 miles, just to be on the safe side. So let's find out what five things Chris Addison would like to put into his time capsule. I hope you enjoy it. When I thought about this, it's quite a hard thing to think about, actually. Uh, I always find myself, when people go, tell me a funny story about that thing, I always go, I, I, can't, I can't remember anything about my life. If anybody ever tried to uh, get me to write my autobiography, it would be, it would be hopeless. It would be either just incredibly vague or very short because I can <laughs> never remember those things. And um, I thought about what, you know, what, what are the things that I've loved and the, the moments that I've sort of felt exceptional. And the first thing that I want to put in 
there's, these are not in chronological order, but the first thing, I'd like to put the smell of the brewery in Edinburgh into this time capsule. I don't know if we can capture it in some kind of bottle. Yeah, I think we probably can. Uh, but that malty smell, if you've never been to Edinburgh, if the wind is blowing in the right direction, the entire city smells of malt. It smells sort of like like they're baking Weetabix or something. Or it's mm. it's a really um, it's a really smells can't be oleaginous, but if they could, that's what this smell would be. It's a, there's a sort of comfortingness to it, and there's a sort of roundness and a it, it it's lovely. It doesn't smell like booze. It doesn't smell like beer. It smells like malt. And um, the reason that I want to put that in is that. Edinburgh has been such an important part, or was such an important part of my life for, for years and years and years. I worked out, actually, that over the course of my life, I've spent over a year of it in Edinburgh um, in total yeah. at, the, at the festival. And the first time I ever went up to the Edinburgh Festival, I went up as a punter in 90, I'm going to figure this out, 92, I think, in 1992. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it must have been 92. Uh, summer of 92. I went up for a week um, with my best mate Gav. We stayed in our friend Anshman's uh, flat. Anshman lived, he was at Edinburgh University and we stayed over in, in his flat and we did that proper kind of young Edinburgh punter thing where we ran around the city to as many shows as we possibly could. This was in the days as well where shows were like three quid and four quid, yeah. not not as they uh, as they are now, although the free fringe has changed things a bit, hasn't it? But still, we would we we had a schedule. We ran around uh, <laughs> seeing everything that we possibly could: comedy, theatre, everything. And uh, I'd never been anywhere like it. And it was the most thrilling place because it's it's alive. It's just it's buzzing that town with with creativity and excitement and people having the time of their lives. There are some people there who are having a horrible time. It mm. must be said, but still the time of their lives. For all of that week that we went, the wind happened to be blowing in that direction and Edinburgh smelt of malt. And when I first turned up, I couldn't, I, I just thought it was a, a strange atmosphere. It was just the town's atmosphere. It was just what this place smelled of. I'd never noticed that other cities smelled of anything, but this, this one seemed to. And then the next year I remember going back and something was missing. I couldn't put my finger on it. And for, for sort of two days, I was thinking, oh, this is an example of never go back because it's just not working out. Um, and then the wind changed. And I went, oh, that's what it is. <laughs> Suddenly, Edinburgh felt like Edinburgh again. So for me, that smell is, um, it's a really comforting, homely smell. It's a proper, yeah, I, I, I absolutely adore getting off the train at Edinburgh and th- getting my first face full of that because it brings back memories from the best part of 20 years. Yeah. Of, um, Where did of you first stay when you went up there? Which part of Edinburgh? We stayed, we stayed over the meadows in uh, Marchmont Road, in that, that sort of in the tenement flats. That's my favourite bit. It's great, isn't it? I read, it's my favourite bit. Yeah. Just across the meadows, beautiful. Oh, it's wonderful. I, I, you know, we were, we were in our very early 20s at that point. And so we, we were up all night walking across the meadows at dawn back home for a couple of hours kit before we began again. And it was, it was thrilling. I mean, we did stay in some, some terrible places uh, <laughs> over the years. That, that year we'd gone up as a punter and we just stayed in our mate's flat. But then a couple of years later, with a theatre company from university, we took up um, some very serious plays that were very, very <laughs> important and extremely terrible, um, terrible productions. I mean, we put them onto, you know, no people. Uh, but we stayed, our theatre company stayed in, um, on, like, it was on a badminton court. Oh, my so God. So we had, we had beds on a badminton court. It was bunk, bunk beds and stuff. It was sort of, it was, uh, it was a youth club run by this extraordinary man called Mr. Fisher. <laughs> who said, 
who said, I only have two rules. I can't remember what the rules were because, in fact, he had many, many more rules, which were just sub rules <laughs> yeah, posted all over the, you know, all over the place. He was, he sort of, he, he wanted to look after our moral souls, which is not what students of 21 really want want to happen. He used to sort of come in and take a take an inventory of who was who was a dirty stopout. <laughs> he basically put out a load of camp beds all over his youth club's badminton court. And that is where we stayed in this sort of makeshift dormitory, yeah. like you know, like we like flood victims for five thousand pounds a week. Yeah, yeah, for an astonishing <laughs> amount of money. That's right. But I think at that age, it's all just part of the excitement, isn't it? I mean, you walk yeah. everywhere in Edinburgh anyway. It's the most beautiful city. It must be kind of it's properly up there as one of the world's most beautiful cities. It's astonishing, and so you know, you're full of the joys of everything that's that's happening at that age. Yeah. It was, you know, later on, I became slightly. <laughs> more cynical uh, about the process. And um, the last time I did a show there, which is 10 years ago now, you know, by that time I was there with a young family uh, staying in a new town in, this, in a flat as far away from, from the madness <laughs> as, I, as I possibly could. But then it didn't matter. You just wanted to just get your hands dirty, mm. stay at the fringe club all night, you know? Yeah. I have some terrible theatrical experiences in those early <laughs> days. Really terrible. I did a play called the Lorenzaccio story. Uh, which had Tim McInerney was in it. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and an actor called Nigel Lavalent. And we performed this thing. And there was a scene in it where the director, a director called Jeremy Howe, I think is now head of BBC Drama or something. I don't know. Right. But anyway, I know one of those people. That's what happens to people. Not me. I'm just an actor still. <laughs> no one's just an actor, yeah, Mike. Just an actor. I had to do a scene with Tim where we stood in front of the rest of the cast. And there were about 15 of them. And they were all stark bollock naked on the stage. Oh, no, no, And no. we once did that to an audience of three. Yeah. One of whom was my to-be wife, who was knitting because she was pregnant. Embarrassed or bored? bored. <laughs> pregnant knitting. and bored. Yeah. And, uh, and the other one was a woman who clearly had come in to see the wrong show. And not only that, one of the members of the cast had the most enormous penis you've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was pointless doing this scene in front of him because nobody was looking at us at all. <laughs> yeah, could you tone that thing down a bit? Is there anything that you could do? <laughs> Just tuck it away Just somewhere. Dip it in something cold before we start. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the first performance that I did in Edinburgh, we did a double act, um, uh, an ill-advised double act at a sea venue on them, which used to be at the Royal Overseas House on Princess Street. They had a slot going, and they wanted to know if we could fill it. So we said, "Yeah, we'll do a comedy thing." <laughs> and it was, but it was nine o'clock in the morning. That was the slot. <laughs> so it was the doing comedy double act. And we, we, you know, we like you don't know at twenty-two or whatever. You don't know how ridiculous that is, and that, that's clearly not going to work. So I, I can remember marching across the the meadows very very early in the morning to go uh, to go to Princess Street and set this show up, and we put everything in place, all the props that we needed. The show, by the way, was terrible. I mean, it was terrible. It was <laughs> it was written in like two weeks and not tested, and just awful. And we, uh, we you know, we set all the props up, and we got our our, our friend Mark, who was doing all the sound, was sorted everything out, and. When we hid behind the curtain ready and then the walk on music came on. We walked on and there was one person, one person, and it was the friend whose flat we were staying in. <laughs> but we, and we still did the show. We still did it. Of course, yeah. But I, I used to tell that story as though we were the heroes for doing the show. And it's only in recent years that I thought, Christ, he was the hero for just sort of sitting there and allowing us to, to, to do that. Yeah. Sitting there with a rictus grin for <laughs> an hour. Poor bugger. Anyway. <laughs> We're still in touch, so it can't have been so so dreadful. No, 
I, well, I have very fond memories of those things because they are so absurd. We did a, a Sylvia Plath thing, <laughs> uh, which was terrible. It had three people, three women, all doing Sylvia Plath stuff, and me and a fellow called David Jackson Young. We sat on white boxes in black leotards and narrated her life. Wow. It was just, oh, it was so awful. Wow. I mean, awful. but you're a man who has a background in, in comedy, so you must know the absurdity of that as soon as it, because there are certain actors who would not know the absurdity of that. No, no, they think they look great, but I knew, we both knew, David and I, we both knew. In fact, once we were oh. about to go on stage and he said to me, he said, uh, you know, Sylvia Plath left a, um, a suicide note, don't you? I said, no. He said, yeah, it said, uh, dear Ted, uh, your dinner's on the table, your wife's in the oven. <laughs> that's, a, that's a dark, and, dark joke. That's a dark joke. And and at that moment, being so tired and so fed up and so hungover, I found it the funniest thing I'd ever heard. And at that moment, we walked on stage. And <laughs> there is a review somewhere saying that they thought it was rather moving that one of the narrators spent the entire play with his head in his hands. <laughs> <laughs> it worked out. That's hilarious. But how, so how long was that run? How long were you condemned to sit on those white boxes in your black leotards? <laughs> Four weeks. <laughs> oh, my word. That's brutal. Oh, I know. The things you do oh. when you're a student and a lot of drink. And a lot of drink, yeah. Well, that's the that's the, the part. I remember <laughs> bumping into Sean Locke. Um, met, oh, God, how long ago would this have been? to think it was at the pleasant so it would have been like early 2000s i remember uh bumping into sean lock on the last night of the festival and saying to him hello sean i haven't seen you around all festival and he went i'm 36 <laughs> and i thought <laughs> i get it i get it and oh, you, right, you know yeah. a, a few years later i i remember thinking yeah i uh i can't i can't be doing that anymore and i used to go and those in those days i used to then go to fop the fantastic um cheap uh, cd and dvd shop and buy myself like three quid dvds curate myself a film festival so that i could just do the show go home watch the thing go to bed because after a while it just it, it takes it takes its toll but those those early years when you've got all the energy in the world there's nothing better. And the other thing is that it's, it's also because stand-up is such a sort of solitary existence, mm. you can go a long time without seeing your pals, really, and your colleagues. Um, and Edinburgh is a big party because for a month, you're all in the same place, yeah. uh, which is great. It's absolutely lovely. It's like sort of the tribe coming back together. But it's an odd, I mean, it's definitely odd. I sort of, I still know, even if I go to Edinburgh, I have a Pavlovian response to it. I can feel the sort of acidy, battery acid tang of adrenaline in my in the back of my mouth as I walk through that city because it's just it, you know I've, I'm conditioned now for after years and years and years to, to feeling that that fear, the fear of the of the sort of intensity of that yeah. time. Well, we're going to put the lovely smell of malt wafting through the air. That that the yeah. entire capsule will be. Be full of that smell. Stinking, stinking. It, it's a lovely smell. It is a nice smell. It is, it's a lovely yeah. smell. My friend who I who I mentioned, my my bestie, uh, he was at school in York, between a sugar beet factory, sugar beet refinery, and uh, and round trees. So depending on which way the wind was blowing, it would either the school would smell of chocolate or <laughs> the worst smell in the world. 
Uh, lovely. Okay. So that's number one. We put number one into the time capsule. What's next? Uh, next is um, another sort of earlier thing, and it's a it's a gig. It's a, a music gig, and it's the band The House of Love playing at Manchester Polytechnic on the thirty first of October, nineteen eighty eight, <laughs> supported by East Village. Uh, and the reason for that is, um, so my mate Bill, who I was at school with, uh, changed my sort of music brain and he did that by um i was quite late to pop music i grew up uh, in in a house where my dad uh, listened to a lot of classical music and uh, my my gran uh, my his his mum used to listen to a lot of that stuff as well and there was you know there was pop music around and stuff but i i sort of latched onto that and i i started quite late i started listening to pop properly when i was about 13 14 something like that Mm. And I started. I started listening to uh, Queen. I was a huge fan of the enormously blousy, uh, <laughs> ridiculous <laughs> band Queen. Uh, to the point where I was in the fan club as a as a kid and stuff. Like I, I at that point, I had enough pocket money to save up and every two or three weeks be able to buy an album. And I bought their vinyl. Over that time, I just listened to them. And then at the age of sixteen, my friend Bill lent me a copy of uh, an album by the house of love who were a band their 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 sound was that sort of late 80s very jangly um indie pop the sounds quite a a broad spready sound it just you know it's not very precise it's quite it's quite fuzzy i suppose mm. and it sort of blew my mind i'd never heard anything quite like it and i remember listening to the he lent me the record i remember listening to it through that evening and not quite understanding what i'd heard and then re-listening to it immediately and it it sort of changed it opened a whole other world to me that i'd i'd never experienced of this sort of indie pop thing and uh it turned out i really loved that stuff and then shortly after that it was that was at the sort of the beginning of my first year of sixth form i think and shortly after it was bill's birthday and for his birthday we went him and me and our mate chris thomas went to this gig, went to see this band play at the at Manchester Poly. And it, it, I feel like it was a moment in my life that was the beginning of a different stage. It's almost like the beginning of young adulthood in lots of ways. Yeah. Because uh, it was the first gig that I'd ever been to. I'd never experienced anything like that with music that was quite new to me uh, that I'd fallen for in the way that you can only fall for music, really, and at that age thing that illustrates for me how uh, like how much it was a bridge between two ages was that first of all we went to Bill's house where his lovely lovely parents cooked us a roast we had a roast <laughs> dinner for his, for his birthday then got on the bus went into town with fake IDs uh, and went to this gig and you know I smoked my first cigarette I'm not condoning smoking kids but you know mm. we uh, we smoked cheekily on the upstairs of the bus I remember buying not knowing what to buy so at the bar so ordering Guinness because I'd heard of Guinness <laughs> and it coming in that, those sort of floppy plastic cups that they serve you at gigs and I can remember that you know the smell and the dry ice and the sweat and the mosh pit and all of those things and it was a completely new experience for me I, I remember the next day, the sort of tinnitus in my ears, the, the fact that I could not hear above this incredible ringing. But something had, something had properly changed. I mean, I just, I'd never seen a, a band live. Um, I loved how close we could be to them. I loved 
the whole live experience of yeah. of being in that room because of course, it being a, you know a small band that it was a small room it wasn't like seeing somebody at the apollo or the empire or the o2 or something like that it was you know right up close mm. uh with the band and it yeah it it properly changed my life and i still think of it as right in my top gigs yeah it's very strange isn't it that experience of going to a gig and and for the first time it's quite frightening really because you you feel as if you're an imposter absolutely to the point where like i can remember walking in with the fake id that we, you know, we'd all bought fake IDs, these fake nus cards that were going around school for five you had to you had to go and get a picture taken and then they they would sell you the fake id plus the sort of laminated pocket that the the, the id would go in. and you had to iron i remember you had to <laughs> you had to iron the thing shut um, so all the, you know, you, by the time you got out, it would all be peeling apart, and you'd hope that no one, no one could. But I remember handing over the the ID to get into the uh, the Mandela Building, the uh, Manchester Poly, as was Manchester Met now, and just feeling like I was, I felt like I was at the in the end of the Great Escape. Mm. I felt like I was handing over my papers, yeah. and I, the border guards were very likely to get me. Oh yeah, a safe journey, Johnny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. Ah, <laughs> ah no. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yes, I'm 14. Oh, no. <laughs> and uh, I um, I mean, we were, you know, it's not like everybody was taller at that point by, by, by that time in our lives. But still, it just felt like, you're right, everybody knew what they were doing. It was I was the age where students felt impossibly old, yeah. even though they were only two years older than me. That, that felt, that, you know, you know, when you're a kid and every year counts for so much mm. in terms of how it feels people are advanced uh, compared to you and, and i returned to see plenty of gigs there over the years but that one was uh yeah it properly changed my way of uh, it probably changed my way of listening to music it changed my the, the kind of music that i listened to and it was my first sort of grown-up night out mm. it was my first sort of adult adventure and it was the beginning of the t- transition from being a kid to to being a grown-up, which lasts quite a long time, that transition. Yeah. It lasts longer than Still we going on. imagine. Yeah, 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 absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think it's, I, I always thought, oh, you get to 18 and then something that something happens. But, of course, it doesn't. It takes a long time um, to, to figure that stuff out. But that was the beginning for me. And still, even now, the opening track of that album, Christine, is regularly on my sort of playlists. As, Brilliant. You know, yeah. I've, I've never been very adventurous with music, I have to admit. All my experiences have been other people sort of forcing me to listen to things. Yeah. I wish I'd found the band that I loved. Actually, I did have the experience of pretending to be a... I was going to say, what about the heebie-jeebies? <laughs> well, that was the, the thing that was joyous about that was not necessarily pretending to be the Bee Gees because I never really wanted to be a Bee Gee. But we used to do a, a status quo parody track. Oh. And it's always been my favourite thing because without without meaning to, an audience comes to see a show that they think is going to be a comedy show, and, and it was a comedy show, and we play a song that is very silly and uh, and everybody laughs at it, but they can't help but react as if it's a status quo song. So every, <laughs> if you do it in a gig situation, people start to move and they start That's to good. bop and their heads go. And it, it's, it's absolutely brilliant to be on stage. You know you're pretending. Yeah. But people are caught up in that thing. They can't help it. Yeah, that's the that's the power of 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 a beat, isn't it? It's mm. really hard to it's really hard to avoid doing something. To do. You've got to work quite hard to not react to some sort of beat that's playing. Yeah. I think, but also there's the, there's the the fact that 
we as people from the world of comedy have always traditionally basically wanted to be musicians. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that it's ever so late to f- that you can't find the band or the thing because actually I I think that a really important thing is to be able to remain open to changes in in music or your musical taste. It doesn't that doesn't mean you have to sort of slavishly follow whatever the, the fashion is, but finding new things is really is really important. Simon Blackwell, who I've known for years, we've worked on Thick of It and Veep and Trying Again mm. and now Breeders. Um, he he always says that the danger is that if you stop, if you decide that's it, culture is I'm I'm full culturally, no further. Uh, submissions will be taken at this point you that's when you kind of ossify and you and yeah. you stiffen up and and that's when that's how old age sets in the refusal to change and the refusal to accept the new you can become dead old dead young yes. by by doing that and i think if you if you remain open to lots of different kinds of cultural experience and different ways of experiencing things as well mm. then you can you can stay a bit lither and younger yeah, I discovered something recently, and and I was slightly, I was embarrassed by it, in fact, because uh, a friend of mine died, a man called Andy Gill. I liked him a lot. He was a really lovely man, very funny, very quiet and dry sense of humour. Yeah. And he died, sadly. Um, and we went to the funeral, and uh, the band that he was in, the remaining members, played along with a track of his guitar playing. Wow. That they'd taken from a session. And he was in a band called Gang of Four. Oh, yeah. And I, I, I didn't know anything about Gang of Four, but right. I'd never bothered to look it up. I'd never bothered to find out <laughs> what he did. So and I heard this music at this funeral and thought, bloody hell, that's fantastic. Yeah. So I'd known this man for a long time but had no sense of what he actually did. He wasn't bothered about what he'd, he'd done. He didn't want me to necessarily know it. We talked about other things. But that's... I, I, I... I quite like that. I mean, you're not, you you shouldn't be defined by what you do unless you want to be defined by what you do. I remember reading a thing Buzz Aldrin had said after um, going to Neil Armstrong's funeral. He said, um, yeah, they mainly talked about how much he enjoyed golf. <laughs> Which, <you> know, like, <laughs> said, I didn't even know he liked golf. But I, I find that charming that the people who went to Neil Armstrong's funeral would go, yeah, 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 he did, obviously did the moon thing. We know that, but yeah, what yeah. he really liked Um, that's great that's great Uh, that's good alright well I'm going to put that gig into the time capsule okay lovely we're going to take a short break here for some adverts we'll be back very shortly a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. Let's return to this episode of My Time Capsule with Chris Addison and find out what else he'd like to put into his time capsule. So we've got three more things to put into the time capsule. Okay. The next thing is a family of elephants. Uh, and it's a specific family of elephants. And this family of elephants live in the Ruaha region of Tanzania. And last year, finally, I was very lucky to be able to go with my family on safari so i've never done that before we went uh, i have two kids and we so we took them for six days to safari and then really to go and relax somewhere for a bit Lovely. after that we thought six days was as much as they could cope with we were wrong about that they would happily have spent four months just going around doing that i think we flew to dar es salaam the capital of tanzania and then from there we flew to an airstrip in the ruaha and we were picked up in one of those sideless jeeps mm. by uh by the people from the camp where we were staying an amazing place in the it's sort of in, on the other side of the park and so there's a there's a longish drive from the airport to to where you're uh, camped and none of us had ever been to uh, sub-saharan africa before none of us had ever been in 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 that sort of um, environment before and as we were driven uh, by our, our guides across the park we had to stop because there was a family of elephants in front of us. And it was, it, I mean, that's, that's a, a very simple fact, but it was one of the most astonishing things that I've ever experienced or witnessed, just to see something that you've seen all your life, l- largely, you know, images of on the television, th- on documentaries or what have you, or occasionally at a zoo, or maybe even at a safari park, to see it living in its house, you know, living in the world, just existing like it's normal to be an elephant. That was (laughs) genuinely mind-blowing. And there were so many of them. There were really elderly ones, very young ones, a big old, uh, big old load of them. Um, And what I love about that moment, there are two things that I love about that moment. One is the sheer wonder of seeing something like that. The the unexpected one, the, the fact, the fact that that's one of those uh, moments in life where you can intellectualize that as much as you want, but nothing can prepare you for the actuality of it happening. Yeah. There's no, there will be some aspect of it that you could never have thought of. That's the, the obvious one of those is having a child. You know, you can read all the, you can read all the books, you can do all the classes, you can do everything you want. But as uh, my, my, as my, uh, kid's godfather said one minute you don't have a child the next minute you do and nothing in the world can can prepare you for that and but that that seeing those creatures that was the first of you know of sort of six days of genuine wonder and and the, the second thing that i like about it is the is the fact that me and my wife and our two children experienced exactly that feeling at exactly the same time wow. that we were in a, a, a space like in a, in a physical and mental space all together at one moment. And that's not that 
a regular an occurrence, is it, in life? That, that no. With the people who mean most to you, something genuinely phenomenal happens and you're all there and all together in every respect. Mm. And um, that whole, that whole uh, trip was just remarkable. It was full of... It was full... You never got bored of seeing... Even things that are there all the time. Like, it turned out that giraffes... You can see a giraffe anytime you want. They're, they're just... <laughs> there's millions of them and they're perfectly happy to come and look at you as you pass by. But you never get bored of seeing something that wonderful right in front of your mm. in front of your face. Did your kids almost react as if, how the hell did you do that, Dad? You know, because <laughs> you think so. I'm going to get on a plane. We're going to fly to Africa. Then we're going to get on a little plane and fly somewhere. We get off, get in a, in a jeep. And do you know what? While we're here, we might see some elephants. Yeah. And then about twenty minutes later, they're, oh, there, there they, are. they are. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it, but well. I don't think that kids react in that way because I think that <laughs> so the the story that always tells this best for me is that um I took my goddaughter Emily who is now in her 20s when she was 4 4 5 maybe took her to the London Palladium to see Chitty Chitty Bang Bang right mm. and the stage music of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is fantastic. And the big moment, of course, is when the car flies, because how can you make a car fly? It's insane. Yeah. And it's done brilliantly, by the way. It has, they have a fabulous sort of hydraulic arm, and uh, and it's, got, it's lit very cleverly so that there are lights coming off the arm towards the car, but nothing underneath it. Yeah. Um, so it just looks like the thing is flying, and then it will go out into the audience and come back. It is absolutely remarkable. And every single adult in that place was going, look, at that, I mean, minds blown. <laughs> Every child was going, well, of course it flies. It's Chichi Bang Bang. We're talking about. <laughs> and there's no, there's no sense of wonder at it. What's well, so because because we've explained to them that that's the normality. I think yeah. you have to. Um, you you need quite a lot of context before you start to go. Wow, that's amazing. Because we've spent <laughs> ages going. This is normal to the children. If you tell them something extraordinary is going to happen, and then it does happen, they go, "Yep." Yeah. Because the go. world is is full of those sort of things. For yeah, children. absolutely. You spend your life telling them sort of fairy stories and all of those all those things. That's a point where they they can't really differentiate between fiction and reality. No, and and they don't know they they don't really have any expectations. So they they don't know what's incredible and what's not incredible. Well, you're very lucky then that your children's reaction to it. You had a joint reaction to this, thing, yeah, rather yeah. Them going, yeah, yeah. You said elephants, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's why that's why that moment is so sort of precious. It's, it is the part that tells the whole of that that entire sort of six day experience. But but it it was. Um, I mean, yeah. My daughter had her birthday whilst we were out there, and we were we had to you know you leave camp before dawn, and then they do breakfast. So you'll, you'll get a table out of the back of the Jeep and you're in the middle of the savannah where <laughs> wildebeest run past eating, you know, eating Rice Krispies and singing Happy <laughs> Birthday. I mean, it's unbelievable. It, but, but those, I'm always, I'm so aware as, as parents are of the fact that childhood is, um, Jeremy Dyson said to me once, parenthood is a series of little griefs because your, your children are getting at your morning stages all the time you know you can't i can't pick my kids up anymore um and that that's that's a shame isn't it? that was a lovely thing and I've, I've got these fabulous humans in return for for paying that price but mm. so you're aware as a parent how time is pressing yeah and you do end up really treasuring those trips our time is very very limited and our time going away together as four people is highly limited so you know that stuff is really precious 
Okay, well, I'm going to put that gorgeous herd of elephants uh, into the time capsule for you, Chris. Okay. So now you've got one good, one bad. One good, one bad. So, the, yeah, the bad one is I was in a film <laughs> a few years ago uh, called The Look of Love, and it was a biopic of uh, Britain's foremost pornographer and richest man, uh, Paul Raymond, mm-hmm. as played by Steve Coogan. And I played a guy called Tony Power. And Tony Power was the man who sold Raymond the idea of porn mags, basically. He, Raymond had uh, the Raymond Review Bar and these strip clubs and stuff. And this guy, Tony Power, came to him in the early 70s and said, you can make money with mucky books. And he <laughs> ran uh, Raymond's magazine empire for uh, a long time until he became so chaotic that he was, he was sacked. Anyway, I, I played that part and we were directed by the brilliant Michael Winterbottom, who is a fascinating uh, uh, director and a really exciting one to work with as an actor because he's, he is, um, he's constantly moving. It's very kinetic and frenetic, his set. You know, a lot of film sets are very boring and you do an awful lot of waiting around, an awful lot of hanging around whilst lighting is done and camera positions are set and everything's very precise and you have to do uh, the same lines over and over and over again for many different setups and it can take a long time it, depending on the film and the budget and so on it's not unusual to just get through three pages of a script in a day for example mm. but the way that michael likes to shoot is completely different he is an impatient director and he wants to move on quickly and he gets you to improvise an awful lot of stuff he likes to just throw you into situations and see what happens he's got two cameras running there's minimal lighting although the film still look beautiful um to, to cut down on the, that sort of waiting time thing he's so full of energy and it rubs off on 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 the films it's very exciting from that point of view one of the things that he does because he likes to work in an unusual way and, and he is impatient is that with the film, you would have a schedule, wouldn't you? you yeah. With a film, what normally happens is that the first assistant director has broken the film down into the number of days that you need to shoot it and how you put those uh, scenes together in, in, a, in an order that makes them practical to shoot and so on and so on and so on. So everybody knows that you're going to start on, for example, the 1st of April uh, and go from there. But Michael had his schedule, but he, he just wanted to shoot. He just wanted to shoot. Right, so let's, do, let's just do a day's shooting. Before the shoot, let's do a day's shooting. Okay, okay, we'll do a day's shooting. Yeah, we'll do some, some scenes. We'll do some scenes where they're doing, uh, where they're doing uh, photo shoots for the magazines. I, he doesn't like to say action. He just sort of, you suddenly realise that the scene is taking place and you, you're, sort of, you're, you're in it. And I, I'm already a real fish out of water in this, in this show because the part that I'm playing is a massive cokehead pornographer and uh i am uh you know a, a, a an embarrassed <laughs> uh middle class boy who has never done coke in fact i had a conversation with my wife before we started to film this saying i don't know what how to play it because yeah you know, he's coked up he coked up the whole time and i that's not something i've experienced i don't want to experience that to research it particularly and she's taught me what chris other people use cocaine to get like you are normally. <laughs> okay, fine. Okay, all right. I, I can deal with that. Yeah. So I've got. I, I've been taught to to take this stage coke, which is an extraordinary. Have you ever taken any of that stuff? No. No. It's horrific. So you have to sort of hoover it up. So you can really snort it. Yeah, you can snort it. So it's. In fact, in fact, the art director. The a, a week before the shoot, I was I was in the production offices getting a beard fitted, and the art director stopped me and went, "Ah, good, good." 
I'm, I'm glad I've seen you. He said, I want you to choose some these. And he took out of his pocket a series of, of sort of pipes and devices for taking, like, for, you know, silver things for, for serious cokeheads. And I went, oh, okay. So which, which do you think your character would have? I, I don't know. So I just pointed at one. And, he, <laughs> and then he held up a little baggie of white powder. And, went, and this is stage cocaine. And I said, great. Right. What's in it? He went, I have no idea. <laughs> so, <laughs> He sort of, I went, I've, I've never, I'll be honest with you, Henry, I've never, I've never done this. I've, I've never chopped out a line. I've never seen anybody chop out a line. I've a very sheltered life for somebody in my line of work, clearly, but, but I don't know how it's done. How is it done? He said, well, neither have I, but I believe. <laughs> and then, and then he, he poured some out on the desk and started to chop it out. And it was only at that moment that I realized that on the desk was a series of research pictures. There was a, uh, Paul Raymond did a shoot of his ex-wife, Jean, um, a few years after they divorced, of her on this sort of stuffed, t- naked shoot of her on a stuffed tiger, uh-huh. which was being replicated in the film. So for research purposes, there were photocopies of, of the original photo shoot all over this desk, and he was chopping out this stage coke on it. And I looked <laughs> behind me and I realized that we were on the ground floor and there's a window directly behind us that people could see it. And we're surrounded by porn, chopping out what looks to anybody like, like coke on this desk. And I was thinking, this doesn't feel like the most advisable thing. Anyway, so about a week later, I was in those photo studios in Hackney where we were shooting um, Paul Raymond and Tony Power organizing some some photo shoots i didn't really know how any of this was going to work at that point i was just concentrating on trying to figure out how i'd chop this thing out and then i realized that the that we'd started and i didn't quite know what we were doing in this scene particularly and all i knew was there was a guy playing a photographer i had sort of direct him and there was a model what i hadn't been told was that the model was a genuine porn model because you can't just get anybody to come in and do this so this this woman Oh my god! Basically disrobed, mm. uh, and like you know, I'm, I'm in the scene, so I can't ask any questions at this point. Disrobed entirely, and then sort of squatted down, uh, and I had to, I had to just improvise some <laughs> some instructions to her, and I was thinking, what do, what do you say oh in these in these circumstances? How can you? What can you do? I mean, I've got to think like, you know, somebody for whom this is their bread and butter. They do this all the time. This isn't the most mortifying thing that's ever happened to them. And uh, so I, I just sort of, I just sort of, I mean, it's a bit of a blur, I'll be honest with you. But um, but I I just sort of thought back to all the kind of jazz mags that used to be handed <laughs> around at school and thought, right, uh, well, I, I, I try to sort of <laughs> describe her some positions that she might... <laughs> helpfully get into um, and I can remember being so just so horrified by the whole thing and uh, and when Michael called cut I, I, I picked up her her robe and sort of thrust it towards her and she took it with a sort of quizzical slightly offended look and just sort of <laughs> draped it over a chair why do I need that because she's perfectly comfortable with what she's doing she models that stuff all the time it was absolutely it was extraordinary. It only got worse. Oh, no. Because then, then in the afternoon, <laughs> you might have to cut this out. In the afternoon, oh, God. We, did, we, we replicated a shoot that Raymond had done where they were in sort of, as his, as his magazines got sort of more and more squalid, there was a shoot, oh, <laughs> there was a shoot on it with two models on, on a snooker table. 
on, on, on all fours, right? And I'm standing next to Coogan, who is less bashful about this, to nobody's great surprise. Um, <laughs> and these these poor these poor women who, you know, who, as I say, are, are kind of legitimate glamour models. Um, they are <laughs> they're in trouble because because this the fashion currently and and then is the people shave their pubic hair right that's that's what you would expect now not but obviously not in the times when we were that we're replicating no. so we we had to we, we had to have sort of merkins for them uh, pubic <laughs> wigs which is a thing that doesn't exist by the way pubic wigs are not a they're not a readily available thing so <laughs> what the hair and makeup department had to do was um Get hold of some uh, some theatrical sideburns that you could stick on, <laughs> sew two of them together, and turn them upside down to form a sort of triangle, <laughs> and use that instead. So these poor women are contending with these things peeling off, and oh. and in the middle of the in the middle of the shoot, um, there's a bit in the in the script at this point where my character hands one of them a, a jar of Vaseline and says, "Could you just make it look a bit." you know, shinier. And, uh, <laughs> and but, you know, Michael being Michael, the models haven't been completely told what is going to happen because he wants natural reactions, but they don't know what we're talking about. So this poor girl <laughs> takes two fingers and just scoops out the largest amount of <laughs> Vaseline I've, I've ever seen and applies it to her colleague. Right. And I, I was, and I was oh. going, well, that's clearly, that's clearly too much. So she scraped it off and, ha- and offered it back. And, oh, and, my God. And I went, I don't know what to do with that. I was, I was fully out of character there by that point, going, I don't know what to do with that, mate. And Cougar went, give it there. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, this, is, this, this, this ridiculous process can't get anywhere. That was the, the most mortified I've, I've ever been doing anything ever i think that whole day was extraordinary extraordinary i can absolutely imagine it yes no i'm i'm like you some people are are very at ease with it aren't they and uh i'm i'm the same if ever i have to do any sex scenes even just kissing i'm really not very good at it it would be brilliant not to be british it would be so good i i often think about it i just think it would be i far prefer to be less uptight Mm. but it's fun it's too late now it was too late i had no idea what age that sets in but it's way too late now still um that is the most that that whole shoot actually was extraordinary because we were we were replicating these extraordinarily hedonistic times and uh and Michael, I remember later on the day that we did that, the, those two mortifying scenes, uh, there was a scene with um, me and Steve and Tamsin Egerton, and uh, we were all supposed to be drinking. And the props guy came up to me and said, what's your, what's your tipple? And I went, oh, right. Well, I guess probably he'd be drinking whiskey, wouldn't he, in this situation? And he gave me, you know, the, 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 the sort of the standard kind of tumbler finger of apple juice looking like whiskey. He turned over and started to shoot the scene. And I began to drink the apple juice. No, 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 it's whiskey. It was whiskey. <laughs> all the booze that we had for this entire shoot was real. And I can remember that there was a, a wedding scene where we were just drinking champagne all day. It was me and Steve and David Williams and Imogen Poots <laughs> and Anna Friel. And just dr- drinking champagne all day. All the poor extras have got schlur and appetizer. And we're drinking <laughs> champagne all day. 
absolutely roaring by the end of it. And it's the best wedding that I've ever been to because there were no <laughs> politics in it. You know, there's no, no, no who should sit next to who. It's just a lot of people having a tremendous time. I can remember at the end of the six-week shoot, Steve saying to, uh, to me and James Lance, well, gentlemen, he said, I've, um, I've enjoyed flying with you. He said, but um, I will be very glad to get out of this world. Because by, <laughs> by the end of it, it was so sort of grim. The sort yeah. of, the, that kind of the, the nightclub world of... Um, exploitation and uh, mm. drink and yeah by the end of it where it's interesting i mean i suppose in a way um michael's technique worked because by the end of it we were just you know we looked dreadful we looked like people who had terrible habits probably did have terrible habits by that point but um yeah it was uh i've, I've never experienced anything quite like that oh my god that sounds awful as a young man, I performed uh, at the Raymond Review Bar. Oh, yeah. Because that's, that's the venue for the, the comic strip. That's right. When it opened. So we used to go in there, and there would be one theatre that had strippers in it, and then the other theatre that had Alexi Sale in it. Amazing. How bizarre was that? It is amazing. Weird. You sort, of, you sort of forget all of that stuff, that that, that Soho existed. That Soho's sort of stopping, yeah, stopping now. When really, we, I think. That street, Archer Street, that uh, the Review Bar used to be on. One of my favourite things when we made the film, actually, was there was one day when the art department basically recreated 1960s Soho down that street. And it was fantastic. It was just, mm. it felt really, th- well, 1970s, I suppose, really thrilling uh, to be down there. And now, of course, it's all, that's apartments, and as, as is everything. Madame Jojo's has gone around the back. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. At least there's a new theatre there now, uh, which is, that's a good thing. In that space, there's a theatre, which is good. Oh, God. Okay, well, all oh, that excruciating film. <laughs> it's, it's locked away. It's locked away. It's gone. Okay. So finally, finally, what, what have we got finally? Um, from the ridiculous to the sublime, really, uh, this. So well, I would like to put in a, a suit of clothes that was made for me by the wardrobe department of the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden um, when I appeared in a speaking part, I must stress, in an opera called L'Etoile by Emmanuel Chabrier, uh, on stage there four years ago, I think now. Wow. Um, which is one of the greatest stage experiences of, of my life. I absolutely loved it. I love opera. I'm a huge fan. And um, I think that's probably why they initially asked me if I would come and do a speaking part in this very little-known French uh, opera. and. They, they also paid me, but I would not have needed paying. I would happily have gone and just uh, done it just, just to hang out with, with those people. It was one of the thrills of my life was to spend three weeks rehearsing and then over the course of a month, um, you know, doing a few performances of, of this opera in a place that I love mm. uh, and, and experiencing something just ex- experiencing something on stage that, that I'd never encountered from the stage end rather than the auditorium end it was it's remarkable the scale of of an opera production is unbelievable because we as actors we're used to going into rehearsal rooms where they've taped out stuff on the floor to show the basic shape of the set and there might be a few poles to indicate where doors are you you know that's it you're just until you get into the theater for the technical rehearsal that's fundamentally that's what you're dealing with yeah not in the opera world but that it is remarkable. You have the full set, the full set in a in a rehearsal room for you to rehearse on from day one. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's incredible. So that play, if you go into Covent Garden and you and you look at the Opera House from sort of from the Market Square in Covent Garden, so it's just in a corner. It's like squeezed into a little corner. There's a little little door. Actually, that building is 
enormous. Not only does it contain a vast auditorium and a huge stage, but it has a scene dock where they keep those sets. That is, you know, you would happily, I mean, you, you, it looks like it's something from the Death Star. It looks like, it looks <laughs> like fighters, uh, you know, TIE fighters should be moored in there, basically. It's so huge. And on the other side of that dock are two rehearsal rooms with these enormous metal walls that go up that are full of full-sized opera sets, which is where you, where you rehearse. And when it comes time for your opera to be put on stage, they wheel it, they push it physically out of the rehearsal room into the dock and then, and then onto the stage. God. Because opera, unlike theatre performances, opera, things at opera houses are always in rep. In other words, there's a different thing on every night because it's very difficult for opera singers to be able to physically yeah. to sing the same part night after night after night. So they have, they have a bunch of time to rest, which means that, you know, La Boheme will be on one night, La Traviata will be on another night, and the Magic Flute will be on a third night. And they rotate those sets around. Mm. So that's why they have a huge scene dock. Each of those sets exists in that space with two others being rehearsed behind them. It was incredible. Uh, so to spend sort of three weeks in that room on that set with these remarkable singers who, when you're rehearsing, are singing like you've never heard anybody rehearse. I mean, just being up close to them and hearing a human able to make that noise mm. uh, is quite something. And what you don't realise whilst they're rehearsing is they're not at full power yet. <laughs> and they're going to get to full power when you stand on stage with them. When you stand on stage and, and the audience are there, oh my goodness me, I used to have to, there was a point in the show where I used to have to stand and make it sound like it was a chore. It was, a, it was an honour. I used to stand about a foot away from Kate Lindsay, who's this incredible mezzo-soprano, brilliant, brilliant singer. And she would be screaming in my face at full tilt. I mean, it was, it, it is the most extraordinary experience. And so just from a sort of, from an actor's point of view, the sheer size of it was genuinely exciting. From a, a, a music fan's point of view, it was the thrill of, the thrill of my life. And also, you know, as we sort of touched on earlier, basically most comedians and actors want to be musicians mm. they're magicians aren't they really musicians that it's a it's wizardry yeah. what they can do yeah what that orchestra can do um, if you like that to see them work at it and to see it up close is a is a genuine privilege the orchestra you imagine that if an orchestra is going to do like a, a couple of um beethoven symphonies that that would be a few couple of weeks rehearsal and it's not it's not. I mean, they, they'll do two days maximum on yeah. something like that. And most of the ability to sight read is absolutely extraordinary. What they can do is, it's just mind blowing. I did a show uh, a couple of years ago with um, different opera company, Glyndebourne, on, I did a, uh, a show on their tour about uh, Behind the Curtain, which was sort of showing how an opera is put together sort of musically and as a, as, a, as a production. And what I got them to do, because I was so th- amazed when I first saw an orchestra do it I got them to commission for each of the shows that we did on the tour um, a different 90 second piece of music from a different composer that the orchestra could never have seen before in their lives and then sight read it in front of the audience and people used to go crazy because you've never seen anything like that you've never seen skill like that it's so well hidden yeah the whole experience was amazingly good fun um because it was basically being brought into this opera by the fantastic Mariam Clément, who, who directed it. Brilliant, brilliant director. To just make it madder and more more fun. So to, to get in and to be able to sort of play with stuff, like I, you know, we added jokes 
that involved the conductor and the orchestra. We just played with the form and all of those kinds of things. So to get to come in and do the stuff that you do, but in that context, it was, um, I'll never get to do anything like it again. And it was, yeah, it was one of my favorite things I've ever done. Fantastic. Well, the only place you're going to get to do this again is in the time capsule, if you ever open it up and take it out. I'm glad it's in there. I bet you are. I'm I'm very envious. That sounds a a marvellous thing. I've tried to explain to my wife, who thinks opera is just people shouting, and I've tried to explain to her that that sort of skill, if you get close to it, when you see it, you can't believe that a human body can make that much noise. I think think the the reason that, you know, we respond so um, viscerally to that is because it's such it's a, at the same time it's an incredibly human sound and it's a superhuman sound mm, mm. by no means everybody can make that noise but there's something absolutely recognizable in us about it and because it's at the the pitch it's at it it sort of hits you in the breastbone really it, could, it makes that bit vibrate mm. i think a, opera can often sound like just a bunch of people shouting but if you hear the right thing in the right context it's absolutely magical there have been moments when um i remember going to see yestin davies who's an incredible countertenor countertenors uh sing very 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 high and he was in a, a production of a of a handle oratorio called saul um and he sings this line oh king he says that's all he says and he just sort of lifted up his head and began to sing it and i can remember just gasping the the sound was so extraordinary it was so unlike anything you've ever heard anybody do um that it it just it hits you on a really really basic human level fantastic i'm gonna put the entire production in there you okay put les 12 there okay well chris it's been it's been really lovely to talk to you and it's really sweet of you to give me your time like this so thank you very much anytime thank you very much for taking part in it it's an absolute pleasure it really is um, thank you for asking me. That was My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Chris Addison. It would be great if you could subscribe to this podcast on Acast or wherever you prefer to get your podcast from. And please, if you've got the time, leave a review and rate us. That would be very useful. And you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at MyTCPod, where you'll find extra content and behind-the-scenes photos. Or you can follow me on Twitter at Fenton Stevens. It's basically just a lot of pictures of my grandchildren. My Time Capsule is a cast-off production. Thank you for listening. If there is anybody still listening. I mean, why do people listen to this bit at the end? It goes on and on and on. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.